Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. You're listening to Booth One, our adventures in the art of lively conversation. I'm your host, Gary Sabinski, saying happy silver anniversary to my partner in crime, Lo These Many Months, Roscoe. Happy anniversary, Roscoe. Well, thank you, Gary. I never thought we'd make it 25 episodes, and you here realize we are. This is our 25th episode, our silver anniversary yeah. episode. We've only come to fisticuffs once or twice. And I still have the scars to show. I got you something for our anniversary. I, I, I hope you're not going to be embarrassed by it. Uh, this, this lovely silver quarter with George Washington on one side and Duke Ellington standing at a piano on the other side. This is a District of Columbia commemorative quarter. I had it specially printed for you in Denver. I hope you, you enjoy kidding? it. It's worth all of about 25 cents. Wow. <laughs> That's thrilling. Well, you're welcome. Don't spend it all in one place. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We've got a bit of a Gallimaufry episode for you today. Are you familiar with that term, Roscoe? Gallimaufry? Uh, yes, there was a store in Halstead that was called... Yeah, it's a, it's a jumble or medley of things, or a, even more specifically, it's a dish made out of minced meat, especially hash or ragu. <laughs> but we've got a whole assortment of things to talk about today. I did want to touch back on our last episode with the lovely and talented Melanie Nealon at Steppenwolf. We've gotten fantastic response to that. And if you haven't listened to it yet, our listeners out there, I encourage you to go to our website at uh, booth-one.com and uh, check on episode 24. It's a really, really fantastic episode. Have you had a chance uh, since we did the episode to get down to the Museum of Science and Industry and see the Fairy Castle dollhouse, see Colleen more donated dollhouse? I thought you were referring to my own apartment. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't. The very castle on Ashland? Th- yeah, the very castle on Ashland. I thought that was going to be a field trip. Perhaps we could organize a busload of our fans and take them on a tour. You mentioned that you had another detail about Colleen Moore and the dollhouse that you wanted to add to our conversation or discussion from last time. You know, I picked up her autobiography, having nothing better to do on a cold Tuesday evening, <laughs> and was leafing through it. And she tells a number it, that it, it took her something like eight years to put that together. And she would get all kinds of people interested in helping her. She would want tiny light bulbs that worked for the chandelier, for the chandeliers. And people would say, well, they don't make light bulbs that small. And she'd remembered reading about a light bulb on the end of a surgical instrument that they put down someone's throat to light up their stomach. Oh, really? Yeah. So she went to, she, you know, she called Thomas Edison or something and said, <laughs> I'm making a dollhouse. I need some tiny light bulbs. But she went to this company and they said, we love that idea. We'll make you light bulbs that, you know, slightly bigger than a grain of sand. And then she told a story about trying to get the chandeliers made and she wanted everything to be beautiful. So she took all of her jewelry went down to a man who made miniature objects and wanted to help her. And he, she handed him a handful of rubies, diamonds, pearls, etc., and said, figure out what you can do with these in the dollhouse. And I, I'm going to put some of these on this particular chandelier. So it's full <laughs> of stories like that. And then she, she had a vanity set made. Mm. So it's, you know, a woman's mirror and a hairbrush. And they couldn't find anything to, to work as a bristles and a hairbrush and something that's, you know, half an inch long. One day she walked into someone's office wearing a sable coat and he squinted and looked at the sable and he picked up a pair of scissors and 
cut off some of the sable to make the bristles for her hairbrush. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's a sable uh, hairbrush. It's a sable hairbrush. And she also wanted a bearskin rug, and this was before plastic was invented, so the man couldn't mold bearskin rugs, but fortunately he found a dead mouse in his workshop and pulled out the mouse's teeth and used that for the bearskin rug. No. Yes. A dead mouse. A dead mouse. The dead mouse gave its teeth so that it could turn into a bearskin rug in the living room. Well, these are all fantastic stories, and now it makes me want to get down there even more and see it all in person now that it's been restored and renovated and put back together. Yeah. So I remember seeing it as a child. It probably had really you know, terrible ramifications for the rest of my life. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Some like, children are taken to baseball games. I'm taken to fairy castles. It, it, it explains a lot. It explains a lot. <laughs> We introduced something a couple of episodes ago called uh, our Sourpuss Smithers segment. Yes. And we haven't revisited that in a couple of uh, weeks. So uh, I have a couple of pet peeve Sourpuss Smithers items to share with you. All right. This is nothing new, but it happened to me the other day. I went into the drugstore, and here in Chicago we have essentially two kinds of drugstores. We have a Walgreens or we have a CVS. So I go into the CVS and I buy one thing. I buy a bag of Ruffles potato chips, a small bag of Ruffles potato chips. I think it was $1.39. And I go up to the self-checkout where you scan it yourself and then you put it in a bag and then it asks you for cash or credit card. I put in $2 bills. My change comes out. It says, thank you, please take your receipt. Two feet of receipt later. No. no I, 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 I kid you not. There are things on there like feminine hygiene products. <laughs> As if I'm the target customer for that product. Right. Yeah, two feet of, of paper receipt for one bag of potato chips. It's outrageous. It's outrageous and I won't stand for it. That, well, nor should you. I'm going someplace else. My other pet peeve this week has also to do with sort of checkout. I am outraged by the people who use the self-check lane and only use one hand to do everything. (laughs) They reach into the the bag or their cart. They take it. They look at it. They find the scanning thing. They scan it. They look for the bag. They put it in the bag. They turn back. They use the same hand. And what are they doing with the other hand? They're either clutching a purse or their knapsack, or their little wallet, and it's all, it's, it's, this, it's this one-armed jack thing. And, and I frequently whisper to myself, well, you know me, sometimes when I whisper, it's almost full voice. I sometimes whisper, whisper to myself, what's the matter, is your other arm broken? <laughs> uh, it happened to me again the other day. And they get scared and speed up. Yeah, any Sourpuss Smithers re- uh, reports from you this week? A, a couple of things. I mean, this is everyone's pet peeve. I can't stand listening to people talk on their cell phones on the train. It drives me crazy. I don't know if I've discussed this yet, but um, my rehearsed line is, excuse me, miss, you can do two things. You, you can sit next to me or you can talk on your phone. You cannot do both. So direct confrontation never works, but pretending to be crazy works. So I do my sling blade grunt. So <laughs> a woman was sitting, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting, she's sitting perpendicular to me on the subway right next to me, chattering away. And I sat there reading my newspaper and quietly going, mm, mm, mm. 
Well, guess what? She got up and moved. <laughs> and she couldn't call me on anything because I hadn't said anything. Perhaps she thought she was sitting next to the Frankenstein monster. <laughs> Perhaps. And my other pet peeve, listening to educated people who end sentences with prepositions. And even worse is listening to myself on this broadcast after we've recorded and hearing myself end sentences with prepositions. The shame that overtakes me. I saw a cartoon in a magazine the other day with two people sitting at a bar and the guy is going, whatever, however, whichever, when. And the woman says, are you trying to preposition me? <laughs> And my sensitivity for, about that comes from my parents. My father was so mean to me that um, I once wrote a letter home when I was in college, and my father, without a red pen, corrected all of my grammatical mistakes and mailed the letter back to me. Hello, Mata. <laughs> Hello, Fada. <laughs> Please don't mean, be mean to me. But my, you know, my parents would always call me if I used a word incorrectly or pronounced it incorrectly or used bad grammar. And I sometimes do that in the workplace, and it's not a road to popularity. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, you? Are you redlining people's? Uh, no, but I'll just I'll correct them and, and say, uh, could you not say um, people don't know where where their next meal is coming from? And say, say find their next meal. Hey, remember a few weeks ago I went to the the circus. Yes. <laughs> and I had a, a grown man at the circus by himself. And I had a wonderful time. Right. All by myself in my trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> well, there there was a story right around that time about Ringling Brothers retiring the elephants uh, from their circus tours by 2018. There's been an update. For more than a century, the elephants have been a symbol of the traveling circus, as you and I talked about so eloquently. And despite complaints that the animals were being treated cruelly, now the days of their performances under the big top are coming to an end, but they're coming to an end sooner than planned. Oh. They're phasing out the Asian elephants' shows and they're moving the creatures, as we talked about, from their traveling circus units to a conservation center in Florida. And they're going to do it this May, not in 2018. So if you wanted to go see the Asian elephants and Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus, anybody, uh, I would suggest that uh, you try to do it before the end of May when your opportunity will be gone. Wow. What, one more thing that we're losing. I, I, I thought they were thrilling. And I thought they looked extremely happy doing what they were doing. But what do I, what do I know about an elephant's countenance? <laughs> yeah. I mean, their smiley face could have been a sad face. It could have been. I don't know anything about it. You like to go swimming in the summer, don't you, Roscoe? Like in swimming pools and stuff? Uh, if no one can see me, yes. Yeah, well, Nicole Bonk. B-O-N-K, and I kid you not, that's really her name. She could be Bonk, forgiven. B-O-N-K. B-O-N-K, yeah. She could be forgiven for thinking she was at an aquarium when she approached a swimming pool in Florida at a condominium association, which you've done before. You, you mm -hmm. go visit family, and they have pools in their condominium. She looked down, and she saw a five-foot black-tipped shark floundering in the pool. How could that happen? Well, I, I'm glad you asked. Bonk was visiting friends at the Mariner's Cove condo in Florida, and she told the Sentinel newspaper there that she had seen two boys dragging and then dumping a shark into the pool with hooks still in its mouth. 
Oh. And figuring that it might die, she and her husband pulled the shark out of the pool and carried it to the intercoastal waterway. Um, once there, her husband held the shark by the tail to get some of the chlorinated pool water off of it, and then they released it. He was barely moving after the trauma. We did our best to try to save the creature. Now, you know, I'm no fan of sharks. No. The only good shark is a dead shark, as far as I'm concerned. But this story had me saddened, because a couple of boys... As our friend George from Midlands, he would say, Yahooligans, <laughs> clearly captured or fished and, and caught this black tip shark and didn't know what to do with it. And so they dumped it in a pool, chlorinated pool. Wow. Yeah. They're probably hoping that you would jump into the pool going for a swim. <laughs> only be consumed by an angry shark. And I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody just sort of catapult out of a pool. Yes. Just like shot out of a cannon. Like a Warner Brothers cartoon. Like a Warner Brothers cartoon. Or like Esther Williams. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be me. That would absolutely be me. Sad. Yeah, that's a sad story. Thank it, you. It for, is a sad story. Thank you and for I, cheering me up on I, this. And I don't often have stories about sharks that are, are empathetic. But uh, this one... This one I felt the need to tell. Do you remember when there were still elephants in Lincoln Park Zoo? Yeah. I used to take the 153 bus to work through the Lincoln Park. And sometime on the warm spring days, you could look to the left off of the bus and see an elephant. Now, what other major American city do you live in where you can see ele- live elephants on the way to work? You, you could. You could see them from the drive. Yeah. Yeah, it was, all, it was very cool. I think there are almost no elephants left at zoos. I think it's very hard. Unless you have 20 acres for them to run around in, I don't think you should have elephants. Hey, I'm going to call this officially. This is, the, this is the DOA on the Keys to the Carly segment. She was reduced to the undercard at the last debate didn't even appear with the top seven. Uh, she, she has been reduced, relegated to the nether regions. So it, it, it's time to say goodbye, so long, thanks for the memories, Carly Fiorina. But Lindsey Graham dropped out of the race recently, and he had something to say that you commented on to me off air, I think it was yesterday. He, he was talking about Marco Rubio or Donald Trump, and he said they'll both be disasters, they'll both lose. And he said, it's like, what's the difference between being poisoned or shot? The outcome is the same. (laughs) (laughs) Was that that his feeling? Yes. The uh, race is getting extremely interesting, though. Sarah Palin has now come out in favor of uh, Donald Trump, which is, (laughs) you're right. What's being shot or being poisoned? What's the difference? <laughs> the outcome is the same. And I've been reading a number of articles and some journalists' commentary about how perhaps we better get used to the fact that Donald Trump very likely will be the GOP nominee, and uh, people in the party better start getting their minds wrapped around that, and people who are of the Republican persuasion in terms of voters, um, they should probably get their minds wrapped around that. Now, there's a long way to go. We haven't even started the primaries. They don't start till February 1st in Iowa, the Iowa caucuses. Um, and that's, then, that's uh, just around the corner, Gary. It is. Uh, it's, it's a week and a half. And then shortly, week after that is New Hampshire. And those will be very telling. You know, I've been watching the debates and I've been watching the press conferences. And I I, I, got to tell you, he presents a picture that, I'm talking about Donald Trump now, he presents a picture in a framework that is very hard to deny. 
whether he's telling you any facts or any figures or the truth or whether he knows anything about politics or administration or management or the Congress. The way he tends to phrase things, and this all, much of it comes from his reality TV training. The way he tends to phrase things is very, very geared towards populist belief. You tend to listen to it and go, yeah, the, the immigration thing is a mess. That's what he says. Something's a mess. This mm. is a mess. It's a total mess. He has no specifics as to what kind of mess it is. But we all we go, yeah, yeah, it's a mess. The economy's a mess. Mm. Well, there's but then again, there's no specifics on his part of how what in what way it's a mess or how he's going to fix that mess other than vote for me because it's a mess. Right. He has no solutions, no plans. I'm going to build a wall between the United States and Mexico and make Mexico pay for it. Really? How are you going to do that? I'm going to build a chapel in the Vatican City and have the Vatican City pay for that. I mean, how does that work? But there's a whole base of people who go, yeah, yeah. damn right. He That's plays how into it their fears. That's I how want America be. back like it was. Yeah. I want there to be a Tower Records on Clark Street. <laughs> I, I want to be able to go to a bookstore in the Loop. I want <laughs> elephants back in the Lincoln Park I want Park elephants Zoo. back yes. in the circus. And I want the goddamn Oscars. Where are the stars? Where are the stars? <laughs> the Oscar nominations what came out. What happened to the stars? Oh, my God. I don't even know who these people are. You know, this uh, whole controversy, well, I don't even know if I could call it a controversy. This whole to-do about the diversity or lack of diversity in the nominations this year, is it a valid talking point? Sure it is. Something that the Academy voted on yesterday is that they're going to take a very, very, very hard look at their voter group their their membership and really scrutinize it. There's also this feeling that a lot of people don't vote. A lot of people vote for things and they don't go see the films. Um, there's also been talk that perhaps maybe they should expand the acting categories to seven or eight from from the five, like they did with uh, Best Picture uh, from five to ten. I, I, I don't think that expanding the categories is going to actually pick up more actors. What if they expanded it to eight and they nominated eight white people? Right. I, or, then where does the argument go? I, I, I think that the Academy is on the right track. Cheryl Boone Isaacs is the, the head of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences now, and she's, she's called for this very kind of thorough re-examination of what their voter rosters look like and how the voter rules are being upheld and uh, enforced. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting and tough topic, and one that the Academy does need to have a look at. I personally don't believe that expanding the categories in number of nominations is the answer, um, because it might backfire and not have the effect it needs. However, I think that looking at the voters um, and that aspect of it is 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 important what, what was proposed they wanted to if they hadn't voted in a while then you would start losing your right to vote correct yeah you use it or lose it yeah. but i remember you know something this harkens back to 10 years ago broke back mountain won every 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 critics award for best picture the oscars come and noted film actor tony curtis says i'm gonna vote for a movie about a, a bunch of cowboys 
so you have people like Tony Curtis who are, you know, then nearly 90 years old deciding that they don't want Brokeback Mountain to win because of the subject matter. I saw I'm another, still upset about that. I, I can tell. I saw another cartoon just recently, and the caption along the bottom said, Baroque Back Mountain. <laughs> and there was a cowboy sitting by the fire, and there was a fiddle on the other log, and he said... <laughs> Darn you, Johann Sebastian! I wish I could, I wish I could quit you, but I can't. <laughs> That's a baroque music joke. <laughs> Let's go back to show business a little oh, bit. Oh, thank like God! Like stage show business. All oh, this, this, the politics and race. My We've God! Why don't you just a, bring up religion? I'm just, I'm so nervous right now. We, we, we both saw a number of things uh, over the last several weeks around town in Chicago. I'm going to start with your experience. You went to a new musical that's trying out here in Chicago, as some musicals have done. Kinky Boots tried out here. Big Fish tried out here. The producers tried out here. Now there's a new show being tried out here at what you and I still call the Schubert Theater. <laughs> the Schubert Theater. Yes, <laughs> called Gotta Dance. Gotta how, Dance. How, gotta Dance. How was your experience? Gotta leave at intermission. <laughs> <laughs> it is a show that is based on a, a true occurrence, which is a group of senior citizens learning hip-hop dancing so they could perform at halftime of a basketball game. This happened some years ago. Maybe there's a documentary about it. So someone thought, hey, this would be a great idea for a musical. Really? Really? <laughs> not, not so much. <laughs> Let me guess at the, as to whose idea partially this was. Marvin Hamlish. Marvin Hamlish. It was the project he was working on when he died several years ago. Uh, he's credited with two of the songs in the show. And it starred Georgia Ingle. From, from the Mary Tyler from Moore the Mary show. Tyler Moore show, <laughs> which I think of as having gone off the air recently, if thirty five years ago is recently, and Stephanie Powers, who was on television, Heart to Heart, Heart to Heart, she is in freakishly good shape. By really, the way. boy, is the show not good? I went with a friend. The stage opened, and you know one of the problems with what we still call the Schubert Theater is the stage opening's a little narrow. They've had trouble with some touring shows getting the sets to fit on that stage because it just isn't wide enough. So it's it's a gymnasium, and and you have the entire cast auditioning. Well, they barely fit on the stage. You can't tell who anyone is. The costumes are ugly. Everyone is a stereotype. There's a, an old woman who can barely see, so she's always turning in the wrong direction. And every time she has a line, it's like, "Oh, I couldn't see you there." Everything is a stereotype. And then there's poor Georgia Engel, who seems frail, but she's starring in a musical in which she needs to sing and dance. So most of her dancing is done from the waist up. And occasionally she'll do some insignificant kicks. And about the third time she has to kick, someone just happens to be next to her so that she can put her hand on his shoulder to, to keep from toppling over. Her performance made me a nervous wreck because she just, maybe she had injured herself or was ill or unwell. But uh, And I love her. She's hilarious. And I believe she did a show in New York off-Broadway within the past year. Within the past year, was yeah. warmly received. So this may have been an aberrant um, occasion. And I went with a friend of mine who I'd never gone to a, the theater with before. And the show starts. And five minutes into the show, he turns to me and said, this is really terrible. <laughs> full voice. Yeah, full voice. And we sat in front. You know, this always, always happens. 
we sit in front of, we're towards the rear of the house, which is not really booth one, I, and I hate to confess that. Well, the, the free tickets were, yeah. were booth one-y, but yeah. yeah. So we're, we're, we're towards the rear of the house, and there's some people behind us, two older women and an older man, and they, they were the kind of people who were compelled to repeat lines that are funny. Oh, he said he's going to New Jersey. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Oh, oh, isn't she? I always loved her. Isn't she delightful? My God, shut up. You're not in the, your living room. So at intermission, I turned around to be mean to them, and they smiled and looked at me, and, and they were so excited to be there, and they were having such a good time that I, I just I couldn't chide them, so I just left. You couldn't knock them down, huh? I couldn't knock them down. I felt bad. They were clearly having a good time and were thrilled to be there. You had, a, you had a bad experience recently in New York at The Color Purple, too. Didn't you? You had yes, another this, audience interaction with someone. Of this is my this is my favorite theme. And one day we're going to get an email from a psychiatrist who listens to our show. And we'll say, Roscoe, I can explain to you this phenomena of people needing to grab for their water bottles and drink loudly at significant moments during Broadway musicals. <laughs> <laughs> and it will finally, you know, this happened to me at Carousel. It happened to me at a number of shows. Color purple. I sit next to a man who doesn't engage me in conversation. It's very quiet still. Watches the show with complete concentration. Laughs, but not loudly. Uh, and I'm, I'm, this guy's really behaving. It really reined in. The big number in Act Two, the big solo number when Celie lets loose. She has this thrilling 11 o'clock number. The middle of the number, she... <gasps> She's sucking in her breath to go for that big note, and he digs into his goddamn briefcase to try to find his plastic water bottle so that as she hits the high B flat, he can go glug, 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 crinkle, 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 glug, 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 glug. Why? Why does this happen? Why can't people just watch shows? I think thirst has become rampant in America <laughs> somehow. <laughs> I, I don't know. What is the connection between being thrilled and something fascinating happening on stage and having to fiddle with a water bottle? I, I went up to Milwaukee, which is a short drive from Chicago, you know, an hour and a half or so, to uh, see the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra doing an evening of Jerry Herman. Now, I'm a big Jerry Herman fan, as you know. Who, who isn't? Well... Apparently, the Grand Park Music Festival, <laughs> because the proposal I gave them to do a Jerry Herman show for next year, they rejected. Not in a mean way. It just didn't go, didn't get past the mm. drawing board. Well, we went up here to see and hear the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra do an evening of Jerry Herman. I have to say, there were five, there were five performers. One of them was Clea Blackhurst. Do you know Clea Blackhurst, the, uh, the sort of belter? She's a big yeah. Doesn't type she girl. do Berman roles? She does. Um, one of the one of the cool things about the show, one of the few really cool things about the show, was she did two numbers from Hello Dolly that were put back into the show when Ethel Merman joined it after what ten years of running. It was six years. She had rejected it when it was uh, first offered to her originally, and they they hired Carol Channing instead. But they brought Ethel Merman back eventually after six yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. She closed the show. She was the final dolly. And it was her final triumph. But she sang two songs that had been put back into the show that had been originally cut, and. Unfortunately, they both sounded exactly the same, yeah. and they were both about Ephraim. Ephraim, yeah. I, I, you got to let me go. I want you to give me away. I mean, they both were exactly the same. Mm. They made 
and and she even said as she introduced the songs, they made no sense in the plot. They did not advance character or story or anything. They just added 10 minutes to the show, and that was just fine because people wanted to hear Ethel Merman. At any rate, the show itself was okay. All of the performers did extremely well. I, I enjoyed all of them, and I enjoyed all the numbers, but they sang all the pretty much standard stuff, and they gave a little explanation. If he walked into there. my life. That kind of stuff, exactly. A big hit for Edie Gourmet. <laughs> Edie Gourmet's version of that is about my my the fav, my favorite rendition of it, any it, song it, ever. It's, it's about it's about one of the great greatest renditions of any song ever. You're absolutely right. The other uh, experience uh, we had, uh, our producer and I went to a show here in Chicago that's been playing around the holidays for about three years now, and it's called Burning Bluebeard. It has to do with the Iroquois Theater fire in, remind me, 1906? 1906. It's done in a clown performance-like style. The five performers are, quote-unquote, clowns. And they're trying to reproduce for you the evening of when the theater caught on fire. Well, it was a matinee, I think. The matinee when a theater caught on fire during a snowstorm in Chicago. And 600 or so people died, including a few performers, but mostly audience members. Our booth one experience with that was the show is completely sold out for the rest of the run. But we got two tickets. It's general admission, and there's no reserved seating. But we knew someone on the board and they called ahead and they reserved two seats for us in the second row on the aisle dead center. We didn't have to get there early. We didn't have to stand in line. We didn't have to elbow our way into good seats. We just had a great experience. I was 50-50 on the show. I, I appreciated the inventiveness and I appreciated the style and I certainly was informed. Um, I learned many things that I didn't know before. But frequently with these clown-based shows that are done, well, often here in Chicago, I've seen them other places as well, there's sometimes a sense of too much self-awareness on the part of the clowns. I could see them trying to be clowny sometimes. Not everybody was as guilty of it as others. One or two of them were actually quite extraordinarily good. As a whole, I enjoyed the evening. They're trying to tout this show as a, as a holiday favorite. And it's so, it's so bleak and dark that I don't know how it could possibly be talked about as that. I mean, the, the, this fire did happen in the week between Christmas and New Year's in 1906. So I guess that's how the holiday thing comes in. Yeah. But it, it ain't, it ain't yeah. no Christmas yeah. Like every Christmas, let's celebrate what is still the worst. It had the highest mortality rate of any fire in America. Uh, in terms of a, a building catching on fire, more than 600 people were killed. This was a, it was a vaudeville show. It was like a um, vaudeville. And so it's little skits. And one of them was about Bluebeard, which was a creepy story. And Eddie Foy was the lead actor in the show. And when the fire started, the fire curtain was coming down and it got stuck. And Eddie Foy said, don't, you know, you're, you're safe. Just stay in your seats. 
And then a performer freaked out and opened the back door to get out of the theater. So this huge gust of wind comes in and literally incinerated everyone in the balcony. And the doors opened in and not out. All of the actors lived except for one person who was on a trapeze and was forgotten about. One of the performers I was talking about who I really, really loved was a woman who played a clown called Fancy Clown. <laughs> and she was kind of a, a little bit of a large woman. She was in this dirty white harlequin type outfit she was hilarious (laughs) everything she did was absolutely spot on she had her own bit right in the middle which didn't really add to the evening or the plot or the story or anything too much but it featured her very prominently and she was excellent in it i enjoyed i enjoyed the whole thing while i was watching it i would recommend if anybody's in Chicago next holiday season, I would recommend looking this up and giving it a try. Certainly this appeals to a, a, a wide range of theater people and appeals to other people maybe a little bit more than myself. Uh, I, I certainly admired the effort, but it was sad. Yeah. It, it, it was sad. I'm glad I saw it after the Christmas holidays because I would have not been yeah. put in the holiday yeah. mood. I, I saw it a year ago, the production a year ago, and I it, it was amazing watching doing all kinds of stage magic with very little to work with in a very limited space. Right, right. But I do remember they did they did some odd things. Like at one point, there were fireflies in a jar. Yeah, they had. Do you remember this? all of them had jars, and they were like the soul of the person that had died. Yes, and they were. And they were another thing I hated. They were passing them out to mm, the audience. Hate that. Hate that. I'm here <laughs> to watch play. I'm not here to be part of the play. And they gave one to my producer, and you know, you think that they're going to give it to you and then take it back. You know, a few minutes later. 20 minutes later, she's still holding it. Oh, These lights are shining, and so she finally just puts it on the floor. She oh, puts, my God. She puts somebody's soul on the floor. <laughs> the, the same thing happened to me. They handed me a jar of fireflies. I remember so th- instead of just sitting quietly holding the jar of fireflies, I, I'm thinking, how are they doing this? Well, how, what is this really? And so I'm, I'm looking at the jar and trying to figure out, oh, these are electric lights, and where's the battery? Oh, how interesting. Did they glue this in? And wrapped Christmas packages, did they pass those out in the audience yes, too? And then yes. go get them, and then they pull something out yes. of it, and it would remind them of the next thing or... Yeah, so for huge hunks of the show, I'm staring at a jar trying to figure out how they <laughs> lighted it from within, and I have no... I'm not paying attention to what's happening on stage. I, yeah, the guy two seats down from me got one of those packages, and I kept going, I wonder what's in that package. <laughs> I think there's going to be something in that package that's interesting. Well, you know, five minutes go by of me thinking that, and I'd lo- I think right. I lost what was going on right. in the and, play. And, and you know what my button is for this, this um, sequence on Burning Bluebeard? Is that... This, this fire was started by a single lighting instrument. That lighting instrument still exists, and it is on display now at the Chicago History Museum. So we can all see the, the exact lighting instrument that started the fire that killed 600 people. We'll go to that before we go to the Fairy Castle. On our way to the Fairy Castle, <laughs> okay. we'll, we'll, stop, we'll stop there. I thought about you the other day, and I thought, Oh, he must be having an absolute orgasmic experience at home. Bette Midler is returning to Broadway in Hello, Dolly. Next year, in the spring, directed by Jerry Zaks, Jerry Herman will be 85 years old when she does. I think it's a fantastic idea. When the news hit, I nearly fell off my bar stool. (laughs) I 
I, I, I can't think of any news that's ever excited me as, as much. This is a show that, you know, it's like Funny Girl, only Barbara Streisand, you know, only, only Carol Channing. You know, they would never think of reviving it and here they're reviving it with Bette Midler. Yeah. yeah. What, what could be more thrilling? And this has been talked about before. And I clearly remember Bette Midler saying, people forget how old I am. I'm 70 years old. I can't do, I can't do eight shows a week. That will exhaust me. But then she went on a grueling tour recently and apparently was amazing. All of the reviews said she was having, she herself was having such a good time. She could barely stand to leave the stage at the end of her own show. I, I think this, she could run this for the rest of her life. She can be in a wheelchair doing Dolly at 85. <laughs> but I also thought of something with Ben. I hope they don't push her down the stairs in the, in the wheelchair. <laughs> Speaking of aging Broadway stars, not that this person is, you know, got one foot in the grave, but Linda Lavin is back on Broadway. Yes. In a new play called Our Mother's Brief Affair, which did not do very well in the press. I'll read something from Variety. Not even the sainted Linda Lavin can save the deeply unpleasant character she plays in Our Mother's Brief Affair, a lazy play by Richard Greenberg, commissioned and first produced by South Coast Rep. You didn't see this play in New York yet, did no, you? No, it's just opened. Yeah, you, you're a Linda Lavin fan. I am. I saw her in the Tale of the Allergist's Wife, and I remember the New, York, the New Yorker mini-review of that play, Linda Lavin plays a nervous wreck in The Tale of the Allergist's <laughs> Wife. And I went to that show. I saw it on Mother's Day. The theaters mobbed. I got two tickets in the front row center. And the audience was completely baffled by the show. Except for my friend and I, who sat in the front row going, ha, 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 throughout the show. So this is one of my favorite memories. And I, I hope we weren't too offensive. I genuinely found it funny, although some people can find my laugh to be really annoying. I've actually had people move seats and leave plays because I sat next to them and laughed too loudly. But when Linda Lavin took her curtain call at the tail of the allergist's wife, she bent down, looked at me, and mouthed, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And then I saw her in The Lions a couple of years ago. Sure, yeah. It's the same Linda Lavin, aging Jewish mother role, complaining, moaning. Oh, my God, she was sensational. Yeah. And they took that show to Broadway and closed in three weeks. Some news out of Steppenwolf. They are going to... Remember, we were there a couple of weeks ago uh, doing our Melanie Nealon uh, interview, and we were in the new office space, which is on the second floor of a building that's adjacent to the theater. On the first floor, there was nothing. We walked in off the street, and there was just absolutely blank construction on the first floor. We had to go up these stairs to the second floor to find the offices. Well, it turns out that that first floor is now going to be a new cafe and bar, plus an 80-seat black box theater with the uh, offices above. So they're going to increase their viability in terms of small playing space, and they're going to have a bar and a cafe where you can get, you know, I guess a lot. And it's open all day long. Uh, it's going to be open in the afternoon, and then it's going to be open during showtimes. Well, what excited yeah. me the most is that there'll be a place to get a cocktail after seeing a play there. I want to switch gears now and talk about 
the summer. I realize that seems like a long way away, but the Grant Park Music Festival has announced its 2016 summer season. The two things that I wanted to mention to you are the Cole Porter celebration. Anything goes when conductor Kevin Stites, I'm reading from their press list now, press release now, Kevin Stites leads the Grant Park Orchestra and Chorus and guest soloists through the works of the legendary and witty composer-lyricist Cole Porter. Who writes this stuff? (laughs) This is off their website. (laughs) God. It's going to be Friday and Saturday, July 8th and July 9th. Kevin Stites is the guest conductor. Uh, It's going to have the chorus with... Christopher Bell. It's going to include a cast of Kathy Voidko, who played uh, Vita on the road. Karen Mason. No! Yes. Oh, how exciting. Hugh Pinero, who uh, played the Phantom of the Opera Mm. uh, in New York quite often, and Ben Crawford, uh, a baritone. The other thing that's happening with the Grand Park Music Festival this year, Wednesday, July 6th, this is just two days after the 4th of July celebration, they are doing a silent film under which the Grand Park Music Festival Orchestra will be playing a score. Now, it's to be announced what the film is, Mm -hmm. and it's to be announced who's writing the music for the score, but this has got to be something that you're familiar with. What, what could be out there that they could get their hands on that would be an interesting film to show? Well, I mean, there's any number of things. I mean, if, if you know anything about silent film, Gary, you know that when silent films were originally presented in, in big cities, they played with huge orchestras. And, you know, people who worked back in the day will say that 50% of the experience was, was the music, the music as much as the visual image. You know, Chaplin wrote scores to many of his pictures. Perhaps they're going to do a Charlie Chaplin film. I think they might be doing a Charlie Chaplin film. You were a, a, a partial advisor to I the did, Grand Park I guess Music I, Festival, I will take correct? credit for this. I did, advise, I did give them some advice on, on what was available to them. Kevin Brownlow, who's restored a number of films, has worked with a composer, Robert Israel, and they have created scores to a number of silent films that can now be licensed. You can license both the film and the orchestrations. And there were some films back in the day for which original scores were written that still exist. The problem is you're going to find something that's going to be a, a, get 10,000 people to Millennium Park on a hot night if you're showing a movie starring people, you know, old Ironsides starring somebody that no one remembers anymore. No, they're definitely going But to, everyone knows who Charlie Chaplin they're is. They're definitely going to go for a name film or at least a name mm-hmm. actor. Uh, Harold Lloyd or Charlie Chaplin or, a Charlie or something Chaplin. like that. Absolutely. Well, it'll be very exciting. I can't wait to find Boy, out what that's going to I'll be. We'll have to take, I'll have to take that week off of work between Cole Porter and silent movies in the park. And speaking of taking weeks off of work, this episode will probably air and be published so people can hear it slightly before, well, slightly before the Iowa caucuses happen on February 1st, and definitely just before The People versus O.J. Simpson premieres on February 2nd. We talked about this show coming to the FX channel. And uh, I just wanted to remind our listeners that this sounds like it's going to be must-see viewing. It's 10 episodes. I've read a little advance word about it that said it's really excellent, really excellent Isn't John Travolta in this? John Travolta is in this, playing Robert Shapiro, David Schwimmer playing Robert Kardashian, Sarah Paulson is Marcia Clark, Cuba Gooding Jr. is, of course, O.J. Simpson, Kenneth Choi plays Judge Lance Ito, Sterling Brown is Christopher Darden, and Courtney B. Vance is Johnny Cochran. And guess who's playing Ethley Bailey? I don't know. Nathan Lane. 
No. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Nathan Lane is F. Lee Bailey. It's going to be wonderful, uh, uh, I think. <laughs> it's going to be interesting anyway. Those of you who have memory of this in real life will probably enjoy it more than those that do not. But it's uh, premiering on FX on American Crime Stories uh, February 2nd. That's a Tuesday. Uh, check your local listings. It's time to kind of wrap up for today, Roscoe, and maybe get to our kiss of death segment. Oh, Lord. Uh, this is not the primary kiss of death person personality profile today, but I did want to mention that master stage actor and personally known to me um, performer, Brian Bedford, passed away at 80 years old. Brian Bedford and I worked together at, I was the stage manager. He was playing the lead role in the national tour of The Real Thing, uh, directed by Mike Nichols. We opened the show in Palm Beach, Florida, in the dead of winter. <laughs> it was a beautiful oh thing. Oh, crazy. Uh, I remember Tom Stoppard and uh, Mike Nichols came down. Manny Eisenberg, the producer, was down there. Of course, who wouldn't want to go to Palm Beach for the opening of, of their play in, in the middle of January? I, I could not have been happier. It was one of the funnest tours I had ever been on. Brian Bedford was a master at his craft. He was always the nicest, nicest man. Every time I would pass him in the hallway, he would say, get that chest out, young man. He always had this barrel-chested walk and this wonderful voice and this great bearing and this great attitude. I remember he went on tour with a, uh, a Jaguar XJ6 motor car and his dresser, who I think his name was Antonio or something, he had hired, he would pay his dresser to drive the car from stop to stop so that he would just fly there, but then the car would show up. Very eccentric that way. Loved Brian Bedford, a marvelous, marvelous actor. You should look up his notices uh, and read a little bit more can, about his life. May I share my personal Brian Bedford Indeed story? You may. I grew up in DeKalb, Illinois, and I had a theater teacher, Ken Brooks who thought it was important for us to go to professional theater. So bless his heart, I can't believe he did this. A number of times, Mr. Brooks would drive us an hour and a half into Chicago to see a touring play and then drive us all the way home. And this was in the early, the middle 70s. And if you think today, if you're taking kids to the theater, there, there would be all kinds of concern about this subject matter, themes, and is, is this dirty Oh, my God. You know, back in the 70s, we go to plays at NIU and there'd be full nudity on stage and we'd be 14 years old. and No one blinked. No one ever thought about it. No parent ever got upset. It never occurred to a teacher that this might be inappropriate. And, you know, 40 years later, everyone's a nervous wreck. You know, Helen has two mothers. Oh, my God, don't show that book in school. <laughs> <laughs> but he took us to, and I. this must have been one of the very first professional Broadway tours I ever saw in my life to see Brian Bedford in Butley about an older college professor going through some crisis. Sure. I think he was, yeah. Wasn't he a little bit of a drunk and maybe fancied the boys? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, he absolutely was. <laughs> and I remember seeing that at, you know, 15 and then, you know, getting into Mr. Brooks' car and lighting to Marlboro and saying, well, that was fascinating. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> But he was a great actor, and he had to have been a young man then. He was a great actor. Spent many, many years up at Stratford doing mm -hmm. Shakespeare and Chekhov and all the classics, uh, even directing at times up there. Never really broke into the film business quite as much as he would have liked to. Unfortunately, he died in the same week as Alan Rickman, 
And Alan Rickman got all the press because everybody knows Alan Rickman from the films, mm-hmm. uh, especially Harry Potter and uh, the Die Hard movie. Do you know who wanted to play uh, Irene Malloy in the movie version of Hello, Dolly? Brian Bedford. <laughs> Actually, he probably did want to. <laughs> and, he, and, and he could have. Here's a he, picture he of was, him as Lady Bracknell. He, he was fabulous Lady Bracknell. And Margaret wanted to do it, and she auditioned many times. Oh. And the role instead went to Marion McAndrew. She was nominated for two Golden Globe Awards that year for Outstanding Film Debut, a category they no longer given for Best Supporting Actress for Hello, Dolly. And the film was such an incredible flop that she made one other film that year, and then two years later made a independent film called The Rat People, which was barely released. It played in drive-ins, and that was the end of her career, and she's never been heard from again. But a friend of mine told me that he has seen footage of Anne Margaret's audition for Hello, Dolly, that they filmed it, and it exists, and that she's really good. And I can't find it. I don't know what he's talking about. I think he made it up. Anyway... Our actual kiss of death segment like, this, is this week. Why don't we call this the death show? From the Iroquois Theater, fire to Brian Bedford. And now to... Florence King, a writer who wielded an acerbic wit, died at 80. The same age as Brian Bedford. Florence King, a columnist. Do you know Florence King? I, I, no. Really? I, I, unless I read her and just sort of zipped past the name. Columnist, author, and professional misanthrope, <laughs> who was a constitutional crosspatch about all manner of things, in particular those things that smacked in the slightest of what she derided as touchy-feely late 20th century liberalism, while she passed away in Fredericksburg, Virginia, at a 80 years old. Her death, announced by the conservative magazine National Review, to which she had long contributed, took place not long after she had moved to an assisted living community in Fredericksburg. It is reasonable to assume, however, that in the moving there, Miss King did not ultimately attain her stated goal of living, quote, in a place that does not call itself the community with a heart, as she once wrote, where all the people leave and the rest of us sit on a porch with a rifle across our knees. <laughs> Read by conservatives and liberals alike for her arsenical wit, Miss King, to the end of her life, she was emphatically known as Miss, Uh, was known for Misanthropes Corner, the column she wrote for National Review for more than a decade until her retirement in 2002. She was also renowned for Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady, uh, a well-received, somewhat fictionalized 1985 memoir in which she plumbed the depths and the shallows of her genteel upbringing. She also wrote book criticism for Newsday, the New York Times, and other publications, is an unalloyed testament to the aspects of modern culture that set her teeth on edge. <laughs> Reviewing her 1995 anthology, The Florence King Reader in the New York Times Book Review, for instance, Terry Teachout, oh. reviewer at that point, wrote, this book contains enough cattiness per square inch to supply an entire city for at least three years. It is also also snide, cruel, intolerant, insensitive, and very, very funny. (laughs) (laughs) The cultural boils Miss King sought so vigorously to lance included political correctness, feminism. Feminists will not be satisfied, she once said, until every abortion is performed by a gay black doctor under an endangered tree (laughs) on a reservation for handicapped Indians. (laughs) (laughs) Environmentalism, the anti-smoking lobby, 
sentiment, intimacy, weakness, special pleading, lack of breeding. She once said, no matter which sex I went to bed with, I never smoked on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Gay liberation, far-rightism, far-leftism, mild to moderate leftism, democracy. I believe in a republic of merit in which water is allowed to find its own level, she said, where voters, like drivers, are tested before being turned loose. The Constitution, children... This is great what she says about children. In order to molest a child, you must first be in the same room with a child, and I don't know how perverts stand it. (laughs) And the human race in general. Miss King, who defined herself by a much shorter, tidier list, was in her own account, though in no particular order, uh, a monarchist, a discreet, tweety, long-celibate lesbian, an erstwhile photographer, and slightly to the right of Vlad the Impaler. Oh, my God. (laughs) Daughter of an English father who was a mild-mannered dance band trombonist. You don't see that very much every day. And a mother who defined the genteel socialization of Southern women by smoking furiously and swearing even more furiously. Florence King was born in Washington in 1936. Uh, She earned a bachelor's degree in history from American University, whose campus, she later wrote, resembled a swamp wafting deadly vapors of marriage (laughs) fever. (laughs) As a student, she had romantic relationships with both men and women. After college, she trained briefly for the Marines before entering graduate school at the University of Mississippi. There she wrote Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady, and she had a deep love affair with a young woman who was killed in a car crash soon afterward. Miss King left graduate school after she discovered she could earn $250 an article writing putative first-person stories for pulp magazines like Uncensored Confessions. Her first story was, my God, I'm too passionate for my own good. (laughs) She wrote more than 100 of these stories. Later, with the waning of pulps, she turned out erotic novels under a series of pseudonyms. Her first book under her own name was the fiction title, Southern Ladies and Gentlemen, an astringent anthropology of the region for benighted Yankees. The cult of Southern womanhood, she wrote, endowed the Southern Belle with at least five totally different images and asked her to be good enough to adopt all of them. She is required to be frigid, passionate, sweet, bitchy, and scatterbrained, all at the same time. Her problems spring from the fact that she succeeds. Miss <laughs> 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 King made headlines in 1995 when writing in the American Enterprise, which was a conservative magazine. She accused the liberal columnist Molly Ivins of having plagiarized passages from Southern Ladies and Gentlemen. Uh, if we had the right kind of laws in this country, I'd challenge her to a duel, Miss King, a gun collector said at the time. But Miss Ivins apologized and no blood was shed. Miss King's other nonfiction books include He, an irreverent look at the American male, reflections in a jaundiced eye, lump it or leave it, whose jacket shows her cheerfully wielding a handgun, and with charity toward none, a fond look at misanthropy. As Laura Buchanan, she wrote the 1977 bodice ripper, The Barbarian Princess. Miss King leaves no known immediate survivors, a state of affairs that may well have been Shangri-La for a woman who, as she once wrote, cannot understand why solitary confinement is considered punishment. Over the years, some critics took Miss King's writing to task, not for its ideology, the ideology it was widely understood went hand in glove with the work, but for its rhetorical excesses. 
But even a blunt instrument Miss King made plain admirably served her desired end. She once told an interviewer, I don't suffer fools, and I like to see fools suffer. Wow. That was very nicely written. It was. Who do you think wrote that? Let me think. Could it possibly be Marguerite Fox? <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> oh my God. I hate to keep repeating her, but uh, she is my favorite author of these, and she writes them so, so beautifully. Florence King, writer who wielded an acerbic wit, dies at 80. Well, Roscoe, that was a great Gallimaufry show. It was. And a terrific anniversary show. Happy 25th. Thank you. Happy 25th to you as well. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. This is Gary Zabinski saying so long for Booth One. Say goodbye, Roscoe. Go. Goodbye. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>